Once there was a guy named Jonah. And he had a blue shirt and a scarf. God told Jonah to go to, go to Nineveh. But Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. They were bad people. They were doing bad things. Like slapping everybody with fish. And slapping everybody with bigger fish. And even bigger fish. God told Jonah, they went far away, but I can't stop loving them. I will give them a new start. No, they don't deserve it. I will run away. I will go somewhere far away and God won't be able to find me. So he went, he got a ticket to not Nineveh and, he, and then he rode the boat and then a storm came. The storm was like shaking and shake the boats. And then the, the soldiers started throwing everything out of the boat. Jonah knew it was his fault. So he said, I'm not following God's direction, so throw me off of the boat. And he fell in the boat. They threw him off of the side of the boat. So God sent a big fish, whale shark, because I know it's a whale shark scientifically. Once he thought he was going to drown, he turned around and he was swallowed by a big fish. When Jonah opened his eyes, he turned on his flashlight. He prayed to God and said, help me, help me. I will stop running away from you, Lord. After three days, the big, the big whale shark threw up Jonah on the sandy beach. And then, and God told him the second time to go to Nineveh. And this time, uh, Jonah did. And then he, uh, he told the people to stop being bad and and do God what God says. The people listened to Jonah and they started loving God. People were so happy that they played laser tag a lot. The end. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Glad you're here. I love the story of Jonah. Now, I love it best when told by kids, right? But I love the story, and for this week and the next three weeks, we're going to focus on Jonah's story, and it's really brief. It's only four chapters, but it is an honest story about a prophet who struggles to obey God. Now, his struggle isn't because God's unclear in what he wants him to do. His struggle is that he flat out disagrees with what God has said he needs to do. Here's how the story begins. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked these people are. God's command is crystal clear. It's the kind of clarity that we often really hunger for when we're praying about a serious issue in our life. God, 
Help me find the right next step. Show me your will. Who should I marry? Where should I move? How should I act? In our prayers, we're often hungry for the kind of clarity that Jonah got. We're searching for that dot that's in the center of God's will for us. And it can be really hard. As we dig into the story of Jonah this morning, we're going to discover that sometimes the harder struggle is not knowing what he wants us to do. It's what do we do when God's command is clear, and it just seems clearly wrong for us. When God says, do this, not that, or that job, that person, that step, it's just not what you're looking for. How do we respond when God's answers are clear, but they're not what we want to hear? Now, that's where Jonah was. Going to Nineveh was going to be incredibly intimidating for him. It was going to be scary. Going to Nineveh was not on his bucket list of things to do in life. Nineveh was the capital of the nation of Assyria. And the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh was this massive city as the capital. Some translations of the Bible say that there were roughly 120,000 infants and young children in the town. Now, if we do the math, that means that the city itself had about a half a million people living inside the city walls. It would be like God saying to you today, I want you to go to Milwaukee and convert everyone who lives in the city itself and in all the suburbs to Christianity. That's a big task, right? Nineveh was so big that inside its walls... There were lush gardens. There was enough grazing land that they raised their cattle inside the city walls. In fact, it it would take you three days to walk from one side of the city to the other inside the walls. The walls were so big, they were 100 feet high, but on top, they were wide enough that three chariots could ride side by side all the way around the perimeter of Nineveh. From this impressive fortress, the Syrian kings had carried out a 250-year reign of terror over the region. They were Israel's worst enemy, and they were the bane of, the, of that, that time in the world, every country. They were known for their brutality, for their grisly treatment of enemies. Think Game of Thrones brutality. That's what it was like. Here's how the prophet Nahum described Nineveh. Nahum was a a prophet who was a contemporary of Jonah, and here's what he said. Woe to the city of blood. I'm just going to stop right there, right? I mean, you've driven into cities like I have, and you see that a lot of cities have a slogan or a name that they've given to themselves. Like, if you drive into Philadelphia, you get to the city limits, and it says, welcome to Philadelphia, the city of? Yeah. How would you like it? To, to, to be pulling into Nineveh, and it says, Welcome to Nineveh, the city of blood. Right? It, that wasn't the end of it. Nahum goes on to say it was full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses. I'm going to guess that Nahum gave Nineveh, a really low rating in those early days of TripAdvisor, wouldn't you? Not a great place to go. Nobody wanted to go there. What God is asking of Jonah seems unreasonable for one man to arrive alone in a city of half a million people 
with an unwelcomed message from an unknown God. It just seems ludicrous. I mean, what could one man do? Would anybody listen to him? God's command made zero sense to Jonah. The command also seemed, if we're honest, it seems really unfair. Why would God want to give a warning to one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times without punishment? Why not just rain down fire from heaven? That surely is going to get a better response and quicker repentance from the people of Nineveh than just one guy walking in to start teaching. Beyond that, Jonah knew that God was asking him to risk his own life. There were no guarantees that he would have any success if he went to Nineveh. God just said, go. No guarantee that he would emerge alive. Why would the people not just simply kill him and throw his body on the heap of dead bodies throughout the city? For good comparison, I think it'd be like a Jewish rabbi standing on the main street of Berlin during World War II and talking about the evil of Hitler and the Third Reich and demanding that the nation turn to God. Jonah felt there was little hope of him successfully getting a half a million people to turn to God, and it's hard to argue with his logic. And if by chance Jonah did succeed, if he did get the entire nation to repent, it's likely Jonah would never be welcomed home again in Israel. Because nobody would be happy at God forgiving the Assyrians and extending their reign. His own people could likely kill him for what he had done. Now, it's, at this point in the story, it's really easy to feel sympathy for Jonah. He's caught between a rock and a hard place. The mission makes no logical sense, no theological sense either. This feels like a lose-lose proposition, and given the same choice Jonah had, I'm not so sure we wouldn't run the other way just like he did, or at least strongly consider it. So Jonah got up. He went the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Let's just stop there again. Does that describe you at any point in your life? Jonah got up, went in the opposite direction to run away from God. It's pretty understandable. There have been points in my life where I wanted to go the opposite way of, what we're, of where God wanted me to go. Given the circumstances, Jonah's decision was unwise, but understandable. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and he got on board, hoping to escape the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Jonah employs what we would call today a geographical cure. It's an attempt to solve his dilemma by simply going to a new place. It's a strategy people use today. My life's a mess. I've got struggles. I, I, just, I think if I just move to Houston or L.A. or New York, life is going to be better. I'll be able to start fresh. We do that. So for Jonah, rather than traveling 500 miles to the northeast to Nineveh, he hopped on a boat to go 2,000 miles to the west towards Tarshish, a city that was on the southern coast of Spain. It was the farthest away point in the Mediterranean. Jonah runs as far as he can in the hope that God will just simply not pursue him, that life will be better in Tarshish than it would be in Nineveh. Jonah's running was more than simple disobedience, though. 
Jonah ran because the Ninevites didn't believe in the God that he followed. He ran because of his fear. And while all of that is true, there's a deeper reason. Jonah's running was more than simple disobedience. He ran in protest to the very idea that God might extend mercy and grace to this violent, wicked people. Jonah knew that God was gracious. He would admit that later on as he talks with God in the book of Jonah. He'll admit it as we dig into the story. Here's one example from the last chapter. He's arguing with God at the outcome. He says, God, didn't I say before I left home that you'd do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love. You're here to turn back from destroying people, blah, blah, blah. You can almost hear Jonah's tone of voice, right? Being sarcastic with God. And he says, so just kill me now. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted, this massive downfall of Nineveh, will not happen. Jonah loves God's grace for him just not for his enemies. And if we're honest, sometimes we crave justice, not grace, for people who've wronged us, people who've cheated us, who've maligned or defamed us. They've cost us dearly, and it can be really easy in those circumstances for us to want God's justice, not his mercy and not his grace for them. As Jonah sails across the Mediterranean, God begins to confront Jonah's disobedience. The Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. You know, it's interesting in life that I think sometimes storms have a way of developing our faith like nothing else. When we experience difficult events, excruciating circumstances, when the storms come, they create this disequilibrium in our souls. And at the same time, the storms can awaken the truth in us that we might never see otherwise. So this rogue storm hits. The sailors recognize immediately their lives are on the line. And so they cry out to their gods, and they start to lighten the ship. They throw precious cargo overboard. And when all hope is lost, they cast lots to discover whose sin is causing this violent storm. Now, just out of curiosity this week, I tried to dig into and figure out what casting lots means. It's mentioned over 70 times in the Bible, Old Testament and New. And yet, historians still to this day don't have a good idea what it meant to cast lots. They used it to help them make decisions, important decisions. Lots could have been anything from sticks of various length to flat stones that look like a coin or some kind of dice that they would roll. Whatever it was, they would toss these things, and the way they landed would point who's to blame or who they should seek for help or help them make an important decision. The closest thing I think we have to that practice today is like when we flip a coin or we draw straws. That's about as scientific as their process was. But when they cast the lots, they pointed immediately to Jonah. So they call him up, onto the deck, and they go, Jonah, so what? And Jonah immediately comes clean. He says, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is my fault. So, side note, 
Can you imagine being the sailors and hearing Jonah say that? What person in their right mind would try to run from the God of the sea in a boat? Not your best call, Jonah. But they showed charity towards him. The sailors attempted to row out of their difficulty, but quickly the storm grew even wilder than it was before. And in the end, they do what Jonah asked them to do. They do the unthinkable. They pick him up. They throw him into the raging sea. The Bible says the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the power of God, and they offered God a sacrifice, and they vowed to serve him. It's pretty amazing that this crew of hardened sailors with a variety of gods in that one instance witnessed God's rescue and gave their lives to him. Now, Jonah had no idea what had gone on because as soon as he was thrown in the water, the Lord arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. We don't know what that fish was, so I'm going to go with the kid in the orange shirt who said it's a whale shark. We'll just work with that, right? It was a large fish of some kind. Jonah was inside that fish for three days and three nights. Not a great place to be. It's at this point in the story where Jonah's story starts to feel implausible to some people. Really? He lived three days and nights inside the belly of a large fish, like a whale? The reality is, it's at that point when they question that they start to think that maybe this is just like one of Jesus' parables in the New Testament, right? It's just a story that didn't really happen, but it's, it's a story that could happen, and it's got a great moral teaching attached to it. But there are real-life stories of people being swallowed by a large fish. In this case, history records mostly the ones where they're swallowed by a whale whole, and they survive. It's possible to survive in the stomach of a whale because there's a gap in that stomach where there's air, and you can breathe it, though you don't want to, right? Think about what whales eat, how it would have smelled inside the belly of a whale, right? You just love this. It's making you hungry for lunch, right? I suggest you go have sushi right after this. It was literally in a whale's stomach, the temperature is about 104 to 108 degrees. And all of this dead seafood is in there. You know, it kind of smells like when they've run out of ice and they're not able to cool the fish at the fish counter at Jewel. And you can smell it when you walk in the door. It was that on steroids inside that whale's belly. It reeked. And here's the worst part. History tells us from the handful of people who've survived inside the belly of a whale for any period of time that the gastric juices of the whale would bleach their skin as white as a sheet of paper. And their color, their pigmentation never returns for the rest of their life. Now, knowing all that, it's easy to think that God is punishing Jonah, right? But thinking that way would miss the real point. God didn't send the fish because he's angry at Jonah. God's not getting even with Jonah. In fact, the fish represents God's grace, even in the middle of Jonah's rebellion. If Jonah had been left in the sea to fend for himself, he surely would have died. And though the fish, through the fish, God is rescuing Jonah, not killing him, and Jonah stays inside the beast for three days while the fish swims east for Nineveh. 
I'd wager those three days seem more like three weeks to Jonah, wouldn't you? It's a long time to be in absolute darkness. It's a long time to be in the belly of a fish. A lot of time to think and pray. Kind of feels like God's version of time out for Jonah. Unless Jonah is able to grasp the magnitude of his own sin, unless Jonah is able to see himself getting out of this alive only by the mercy and grace of God, then he's never going to be able to understand what God's about to do in Nineveh. How he can show mercy to evil people, even those as evil as the Assyrians in Nineveh. Jonah's story shows us just how intimately God is involved in every one of our lives, right down to the smallest details. Like, do you ever wonder why God sent a fish to take care of Jonah? I don't think it was a coincidence. Because if you look at Assyrian history, their primary god was Dagon, who was a great fish. I don't think it was a coincidence that Jonah's ghostly white skin was a part of this because all of that would guarantee his smell and the way he looked would guarantee that people would notice him when he walked into Nineveh. At its core, the story of Jonah, with all of its twists and turns, is about how Jonah, God grabs Jonah. Sometimes he grabs us by the, skin, by the scruff of our neck, sometimes by the arm, to teach us important lessons about faith in this life. Mostly, what he wants to teach Jonah is that God will extend mercy to each of us even when we don't understand it or deserve it. In the depths of his heart, Jonah knew, Jonah was struggling to understand the goodness and the grace of God, and every one of us has been there. When what's happening around us makes us feel like God is indifferent, or at worst, he doesn't care. There are times in our life when God's goodness seems elusive. When you sit in the doctor's office as they read you the biopsy results. When you're wondering if you're ever going to find gainful employment again because your last lead has just dried up. There are times when we question why what seems like the perfect relationship, the one we had waited for and wanted our whole life, that relationship crashes and burns. And if there is a God in those moments, we're tempted to wonder if he really knows what he's doing in our life. So let me ask you, what's your typical response when whale-sized problems come in your life? Life's going to bring us a lot of those moments, big and small, where we have to decide, just like Jonah, we have to decide what we truly believe about the character and the nature of God and in those moments, will we follow God or will we be like Jonah and run from him? Will we follow God, even when it's hard, even when we don't understand, even when we don't agree and our hearts scream in protest? When the waves come crashing around us, when life creates a disequilibrium in our souls, 
Will we trust God enough to follow him no matter where he leads us?